Good morning. Our scripture reading comes from John chapter, 19, uh, John chapter 20, the verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins will be forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the word of the Lord. Have you ever had a dinner table discussion in which you went around the table and asked everyone which person of the Bible they liked most of all? For some kids, I'm sure it would be David or Elijah or Daniel or perhaps Hannah, Mary, or Paul. But I'd be really surprised if anyone voted for Thomas. Of all the people we find in scriptures, the one candidate who could be that poorest image of a believer would probably be Thomas, doubting Thomas, as we often call him. Thomas, the disciple with the Eeyore complex. His doubt is a bit surprising, though, because don't forget that Thomas had the amazing privilege to literally walk with our Lord Jesus Christ for three years. Thomas heard Jesus' message. He saw Jesus' miracles. He, he shared life with both his master and those, and those disciples. And so we ask, whatever happened to him or what didn't happen to him that he should be portrayed as such a doubter. And yet, if we're honest, there is a, a very real and sobering sense in which Thomas is that one biblical personality that most resembles the educated person in the 21st century. 
we are increasingly aware of the fact that we're leaving the modern era where everything could presumably be proved scientifically or rationally. Shaped by centuries of Enlightenment scholasticism, we had the answers, and our task was simple. Logically convince the atheist that God did, in fact, exist. But without realizing it, many times we simply used the same tools that our modern society had given to us to fight for a faith that could be argued for rationally. Yes, we had the answer. Our apologetics was watertight. But now we find ourselves in a changing world. And the thinking believer in his or her moments of honesty finds themselves facing questions that the old answers just don't seem to cut it anymore. In our global village, we rub shoulders with other religions as never before. And our attempts to answer with a biblical text are simply countered by a quotation from the Quran. Or a Hindu neighbor may politely affirm our Jesus and then simply add him to their thousands of household gods. Her faith has sustained her culture for thousands of years, and she may smile and ask what our religion could possibly offer her and her family that Hinduism can't. And then add to this kind of daily scenario the challenge of figuring out what God is doing in the COVID-19 pandemic. Whether we're concerned about the spread of the virus or the economic fallout or the fairness of the fact that frontline caregivers often end up with the virus themselves, our faith can drop into a deep, dark hole. Where is God? What kind of a God is he after all? Ah, Thomas, we kind of get you now. And so maybe we think we should look for DNA evidence that irrefutably proves that Adam and Eve were the first human beings and that everything started with them. Or, or we should look for archaeological proofs that, that the flood really took place. And yes, the Hebrews crossed the Red Sea, not the Reed Sea. Even though Discovery Channel and Nat Geo, as well as other historians of impeccable pedigree, insist that there are no historical proofs for such events. Well, someone might say that that, that's all a bit complicated. Why why don't we just talk about Jesus? I'm fine. According to the gospel accounts, the eternal Son of God entered human history through a young woman's womb. And she was a virgin, in fact. And so, do you really mean that this child that's laying in the manger is the Lord? If that story is true, it changes everything. And, and how do we define the incarnation, or how do you explain Jesus rising from the dead? And so, maybe to believe, to really believe, isn't quite so easy. And so, we'd love to have more proofs. Students at a secular university would love to have more confirmation that would convince the skeptics once and for all. We need more signs, more evidence. And so when John tells us that Jesus did many other miraculous signs that are not recorded in this book, we feel a little shortchanged. Leaving these proofs out appears to be a colossal mistake, a fatal one. If only we knew more, if only we had more evidence, it would be easier to to evangelize, it would be easier to be a Christian, 
a follower of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. However, to say that John didn't include more signs doesn't mean that he hasn't given us any signs. In fact, John has structured his gospel account around miraculous signs. They lie at the heart of what he's trying to teach us as he shows us that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he begins with the wedding at Cana, for example. And and then you can think of the healing of the official son, the, the opening of the eyes of the blind man, or the raising of the paralytic that had been lying there for 38 years. But perhaps the crowning one is raising Lazarus after he had been dead for four days. And yet, as impressive as the signs were, they are not irrefutable proofs that verify either the truth of the gospel nor even the identity of Jesus. Because if they were irrefutable, unquestionable as evidence, how could it be that the people who witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead didn't believe? But they went and told the Jewish council instead. I mean, presumably, Raising somebody from the dead would seem to be an impressive miracle, an undeniable one, one that would answer every doubter, but some didn't believe. Or or how do you explain that many of the thousands of people who ate the bread and fish that Jesus miraculously multiplied turned their backs on him and chose not to follow him? And so it would seem that signs have the capacity to create doubts and not only faith. Miracles may, in fact, harden some people in a state of unbelief, while others come to faith. It could also be that we've simply assented to the historical narrative as part of our Christian upbringing. We've never really questioned it. But what if the deeper question is this? Has Christ's resurrection transformed us? What what difference has it made in our lives Does Jesus' resurrection mean anything in a world where a virus can sweep around the globe, end lives of thousands of people, shut down the economy, and force us all to stay indoors? What kind of a God can we really believe in? And so whether we like it or not, to some extent, we can identify ourselves with Thomas, the twin, That's an interesting reference, that one. Who's that other nameless twin? Maybe Tom is more related to us than we think. Maybe we are his twin. And so we'd love to have a sign, too. It's not enough that others tell us about what they've experienced. We need to know firsthand. I mean, think about it. Jesus died publicly. Why wasn't he resurrected publicly? Why didn't he present himself to Pilate or the Sanhedrin? And this story about about women and angels, now we can understand why women of Jesus' day were not allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a trial. They weren't thought to be trustworthy. I mean, they might easily invent or embellish the facts. Angels? (laughs) Really? So we crave a sign some concrete, irrefutable fact, something we can touch with our hands. And we love to touch the evidence because if not, it could all just be an illusion, a story, nothing more. And so like Thomas, the idea of putting our fingers in Jesus' wounds, of putting our hands in Jesus' side, 
seems, well, a stroke of genius. And at the heart of the problem lies the fact that biblical faith, as the Reformers pointed out, includes conviction and confident trust. But we can find it hard to place our trust in God because all too often we don't understand what he's trying to do in our lives. And quite frankly, sometimes we can even think that he has messed things up or or that he's indifferent to our plight. And so we put conditions to our faith. Lord, I will trust you if you heal me. I will follow you if you solve this problem, if you bless my business, if you restore my child to health, if you bring someone into my life with whom I can get married. I will believe in you if you give me a job with this much income. And we insist that God works according to our standards, our needs, our desires, our conditions. And if he doesn't, well, he will have less followers to cheer him on. We negotiate with God and we try to convince him that it is in his best interest that he answers our request if he wants his team to grow. And so just when we are locked up in our fears and questions and doubts and loneliness, Jesus shows up in ways that we would not have expected. A week after the resurrection, Jesus presents himself to his disciples again in the room with a locked door. And this time, Thomas is there as well. Jesus greets them with the same words, peace be with you. And this time he turns to Thomas and he says, put your fingers here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, we'd love to admit and to imagine, as as painters have often done, that, that Thomas came close to our Lord, and with a trembling hand, he he put his fingers into the wound where the nails had been, and then carefully, gently, he he, he kind of put his hand into the side, and with the other disciples standing all around looking on. But the text says nothing of the kind. Instead of touching him, Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. It's an extraordinary confession. No one else, not not even Peter, had made a similar confession when he had affirmed Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. This is an amazing confession that recognizes the true identity of Jesus as God, as Lord. It's it's astounding. I mean, if it had been one of us looking for a sign to confirm our faith, to give us the affirmation that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, you would have expected another reaction. We would have expected Thomas to say something like, oh, so it is true. It's, it's you. You've been risen from the dead. You've, you've, you're alive. You've come back. Wow. But no, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus affirms Thomas's confession, but then he adds, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed, supremely happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. Sometimes we wish we could have seen Jesus. We could see him now. But remember, not everyone who saw him believed. Faith is always a gift of God's grace. 
And believing today is possible because we've been transformed into participants of a way of life that would not make any sense if Jesus had not risen from the dead, if he were not our Lord and our God. And this kind of faith is is not something that you can explain with scientific mathematical certainty in an effort to convince an unbeliever that Jesus is Lord, but it's all about learning to see the world from Jesus' perspective. It's not just a matter of confessing that Jesus is my personal Savior either. No, no, he is the risen Lord who has come not only to redeem and to restore my life, but the entire universe. He is Lord. He is the universal King. Our faith is not the result of a process in which we decide if there's sufficient evidence to support the claims of the Bible and then make a decision. Just think it would be like us sitting in the judge's chair while Jesus stands in the place of the accused and he would be the one on trial. No, no, think about the text. Remember that it's, it's Jesus who seeks out Thomas. It is Jesus who understands his questions, his fears, his doubts, and comes to him with grace, mercy, and peace to invite Thomas to come close to him. So Thomas's confession is a response to the sinner-seeking love of Christ, the Lord, who has conquered death and who could have easily taken it easy. You know, after all the suffering and agony of Good Friday, he could have said, I, I need to just be with my father for a while. I need to do something else. But no, instead, Jesus is the good shepherd who goes looking for his wandering sheep. And so it is love not some rational argument that draws Thomas back. I'm deeply impressed by the way that Jesus teaches Thomas. Why not simply say, Thomas, come here and shake my hand, or or, Thomas, give me a hug, or even come near and, and, and touch the hem of my garment? Why must he point to his wounds? We usually try to hide or downplay our wounds. We, we don't want others to know or, or to see. And we have all kinds of defense mechanisms in place to defect the attention of other people so that they never see our weaknesses. I mean, wounds aren't nice. And yet, Jesus highlights his wounds. In fact, the wounds of Christ will be visible throughout all eternities because John Later on, when he writes the book of Revelation, he says, Then I saw the Lamb, looking as it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. We will see Jesus with the signs of his crucifixion throughout all eternity, wounded for us, and those wounds will always testify to his love, a love without limits for us. Think about it. The resurrected Lord, the conquering king, chose not to present himself with divine power and majesty, with lightning flashes and thunderclaps, with the choir of angels and trumpets. So neither did Jesus come prancing into the city riding on some magnificent steed with the deflated scribes and Pharisees in tow. There is no ticker tape parade down Main Street, Jerusalem, with everyone cheering from the balconies. There's no visit to Rome to get his order of the empire medallion but rather Jesus comes to a small 
scared group of people hiding behind a locked door and shows them his wounds. Although he is the resurrected Lord of life, the king of the universe, he still lets himself be known by the signs of his humility, his shame, his human weakness. Our salvation is found in the wounds of Jesus, in his crucified body, in his shed blood, in Jesus who rose again. Jesus has emptied the bitter cup of suffering that we had deserved, and by presenting himself as the wounded Lord and God, he reminds us that though the painful remembrance of past sins can come to haunt us once in a while, the poison of that sin no longer digs its teeth into our hearts. Thomas isn't the only disciple in that room. Peter was there too. And he not only publicly and boldly proclaims that Jesus is alive on the day of Pentecost, as we read in Acts chapter 2, but as he later encouraged a, a scattered church in his first epistle, he reminds them that his readers are part of those who haven't seen Jesus but still believe. And so they are recipients of wonderful blessings. Jesus' words clearly impacted Peter's memory too. Because of the mercy of God, Peter reminds us, we've been given a new identity. We've been born anew by the power of the Spirit, a new birth that has, is defined as, as living, dynamic, as real hope, guaranteed because Jesus rose from the dead. We've been given the, the, an inheritance that will never be taken away from us because we are shielded by God's power, not ours. And Peter says, this should give us great joy. But listen carefully. This faith is, is for the real world because Peter knows that the, these promises are extravagantly extraordinary. But our day-to-day -day experience might be very different. Christian life isn't all celebration. And so it's as if he's looking over our shoulder, or better yet, it's as if he puts his hand on our shoulder and he says, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. How could Peter know that we'd be sitting in our homes today so many years later, some of us going through not just a general inconvenience, but a crisis, a trial. And yet, listen to what he says. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, and he says something which is far more valuable, that, that gold that won't last because such gold goes through fire, but your faith will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed at the end of history. And then he adds those encouraging words. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, namely salvation. So with that, we can, we can face today and tomorrow and next week and next month, we can face the future. We can actually strain for the future. We can lean into the future, not with any kind of bravado, but with a faith that fills us with joy because we are looking forward to Christ's return, to the new heavens and the new earth 
where there will be no more suffering, no viruses or pain. But above all, we are looking forward because we will finally see Jesus in person. And we will know that we are loved because he'll show us his scars to prove it. That faith, that hope, though shaken by world events or personal experience, is shielded by God's power. This is the Easter hope that keeps us going. Yes, Christ died. Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. And so in the middle of the trial, we can sing, You alone are my portion. You make my lot secure. I have a delightful inheritance, so I keep my eyes always on the Lord. My heart is glad, and I can sing. I can entrust my body to you, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. No, because Jesus saw no decay. We are assured of resurrection, and we believe that God will lead us along the path of life, and he will fill us with joy in his presence, and we can be absolutely sure that there are eternal pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, on this morning for the scriptures that tell us of Thomas's struggle of faith, his questions, his doubts, and ultimately how, how Jesus Christ came, wounded, showing himself, wounded for our sins, and how Jesus comes into the center of the story so that we can be convinced that he is alive and that we are loved. We thank you for the promises of blessing, for comfort in our trials, and it is for all these things that we give you praise. Amen.